Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for being with me. I am very happy to have Neil G. Clark on the show. He is a researcher and writer who has written a comprehensive book about notorious New York City mobster Eddie McGrath called Doc Boss, Eddie McGrath in the West Side Waterfront. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Sure. So where did you get the idea to write a book about Eddie McGrath? It started out more of an accident than anything. I'm sure you know with your own research, sometimes you start pulling threads and you keep pulling it. And then before you know it, you think you have a book with you. But I, um, I always had an interest in the mob. Irish organized crime in New York at the turn of the century. And a name I'd always come across was Eddie McGrath. But the more I researched, the more I looked, there was never much information on him other than, you know, he was a waterfront figure and he worked for the International Longshoremen's Association. But beyond that, I really couldn't find much information on him, despite him being such a viewed as a significant figure in New York organized crime during, you know, that 1930s to 1950s period. So one day I put in a freedom of information request to the FBI, just um, thinking I'd only get back a little bit of information. And then about a year later, this was before they were doing um, CD-ROMs and things like that. I got a giant stack of office boxes left on my porch after I paid shipping and things. And there was thousands of pages about Eddie McGrath he, as he had been investigated for almost four decades. And then I just kept going into it, which led to more research, which then led to more research. And you start tying it all together. And by the time I was finished, I really thought, you know what, I need to put this in a book just because it's, it's a history that hasn't been told before that I wanted to share. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So your book opens with this crazy robbery gone bad on March 30th, 1923. And as you point out in your book, it's a scene straight out of a dark comedy. Would you mind sharing that story uh, and telling us why you started your book with it? 
Yeah, I I started with that story just because the story involves John Mutt Witten, who was really, he's an ex-con, he's a waterfront worker, and I wanted to show kind of what the waterfront was like in terms of it was rough, it was a job where they would hire ex-cons, where in other industries you wouldn't be able to be employed, and so I told the story of the robbery to give kind of a background to what what someone like Mutt Witten went through in life. Like he was a real hard case, didn't have anything going for him. You know, I'd been to prison for the majority of his life. And then when he gets out, he finds employment on the waterfront, like so many ex-convicts did at the time. And then I wanted to kind of show what an experience like that on the waterfront was and how the mob controlled them and really had people like Mutt Witten under their thumb, just kind of these low-level everyday criminals that were that were in and around the West Side neighborhoods. Right. Would you mind walking us through that 1923 robbery? Yeah, the, the robbery it was it was comical in the sense that you've got Mutt Witten at the time who was you know essentially pretty close to being a juvenile, and he he and another friend were robbing a cigar store at the time. When they're robbing the cigar store, who happens to come in but literally one of the detectives, John Cords, on the NYPD, who has, I think, the arrest records for that year, happens to walk into the store as they're robbing it. Um, a shootout happens. Cords is shot. The officer, Mutt Winton's friend, is shot. Everyone is. Essentially, another officer shows up as backup and thinks that the NYPD officer is the robber and shoots at him and his brother who would come to assist. So it was just a bit of a mess that ended up with no successful robbery and Mutt Witten getting a very long prison sentence as a result of it. Yeah, this detective was shot over and over and over again, and he kept getting back up. <laughs> yeah, shot by everyone, right? <laughs> and he was, you know, a seasoned detective with, with 100 arrests that year. Yeah. And then fast forward to 1941. Mutt Witten is out of prison. He becomes a hardworking uh, dock worker, and he has mellowed a bit. He's trying to go straight. Yeah, he lives kind of on the edges. You know, he still knows those people. He still knows that world, but he's turning up for work every day, and he's actually doing the work. And he, you know, he's got steady employment on one of the piers and. Uh, Cords, the NYPD officer, he's actually in the waterfront squad. He doesn't believe it at first, but he goes down every day and sees that Mutt's, you know, punching in his time clock, doing the work and doing hard work and things. So he he does turn it around for that, that little bit of time. And he becomes the victim of Eddie McGrath and his outfit. Yep, that's right. And why I included the story was just to show how these dock workers who were there were really at the whim of McGrath and his outfit and the gangsters on the waterfront where Mutt Witten, he's friends with Cords who had arrested him all those years early. Some machine guns are stolen off of a pier um, that were meant for the war effort. So stolen machine guns are a big deal. They get found and fingers start getting pointed at Mutt Witten because they assume that him being friends with a police officer is enough to justify that maybe he he was a snitch. So then from there, Andrew Squint Sheridan, who is Eddie McGrath's main enforcer, his main gunman, he, he goes down to the dock. He invites Mutt into just an area at the end of the dock and he shoots him and he, he kills him. And there's other dock workers present that no one says anything, no one reports anything. And 
it was more just to show a tale of someone like Mutt, who was kind of lived on the edge and things, but he really was under the thumb of these gangsters. And, you know, you could be killed on the waterfront for the most minor infractions or perceived slights, and the police couldn't solve these murders. Your book is, is filled with lots of colorful characters with bad reputations, and you just mentioned one of them, Squint Sheridan. Can you tell us why he was called Squint? Yeah, he's definitely one of the most interesting cases in the book. He, um, real rough upbringing too, in and out of child protection services, juvenile facilities. And at one of them, he, it's not confirmed. It mentions one of the probation reports that someone had thrown, one of the other children had thrown something in his eye that was corrosive. So he had the, uh, an impairment in his eye and he used to wear these incredibly thick glasses. So of course, you know, Andrew Squint Sheridan. I mean, you can't make it up. Here, here's an enforcer, a hitman, <laughs> yeah, and he can barely see. Yeah, and it gets him into trouble sometimes. He, you know, there's one hit where he did. He killed an innocent person and things because he he misidentified who it was. He was definitely a dangerous person. He was he was a killer for hire and things. But you know, they they brought him into that for that skill. But as he said, Squint Sheridan, he did. He he was a bit older than Eddie McGrath and his friends. He you know, he had the slick back hair and his big, thick glasses. He looked straight at a character out of Dick Tracy novel. <laughs> right. So a lot of gangsters from this era, their childhoods were troubled. Uh, many of these guys grew up in the concrete jungle, learned about crime at an early age. But this wasn't the case with Eddie McGrath, right? Yeah, and that's what makes him such an interesting case in the sense that most of his contemporaries really were in and out of the system from a young age. They were orphans, some of them, or, you know, they were with single parents back then, no food on the table, tenement housing and things. And while Eddie McGrath was not rich by any means or well off, he went to school. He, you know, he went up into high school, which was not the norm for a lot of people back then. He could read, he could write. He was an altar boy in the church. He like he had family. All of his family members weren't involved in crime. None of them had convictions for anything. And, you know, he came from a big Irish family. So there's a good sample size there. But all of his family was clean records and things. But Eddie McGrath, he, his father passed away at a young age. His mother remarried. And when his mother passed away, he kind of, as one of the oldest children in the house, he kind of drifted away from it. And from what you read about him, he, he really loved like the thrill of it as when he was younger and things. He he liked fast money and he got into starting to commit like small robberies and then progressing to larger robberies, but definitely not your stereotypical background that you would see from a lot of these gangsters as far as hardship. Right, right. His stepfather was nice. Uh, family life was stable, but he still robs an ice cream shop at age 21. And then, likely to the horror of his straight-laced family, he, he begins his descent into a life of crime. He becomes a low-level bootlegger, but he gets in as prohibition is nearing its end. Yeah, he was a bit late to the party, and as he said, 21 for his first arrest, and it really was kind of a, a small-time arrest, but I think there was still, even as it was petering to an end, there was still a lot of easy money to be made, and he was you know, living in rooming houses, taverns in that circle. And 
from everything that I've read, everything that I've heard from people that knew him, he was incredibly personable, incredibly smart when it came to it. And uh, I'm sure that Prohibition, there was no shortage of work for people like him who were willing to put in the work as far as anything from beer sales to organizing and things. And the other asset with Eddie McGrath was that, as I said, he could read, he could write, he could keep books, he could do all of that where, you know, a lot of these people too you had the italian mob first generation italian some of them couldn't read or write english you had other ones who just never progressed past grade school so he was he was a bit of an anomaly right for sure so in february of, of 1930 mcgrath was sentenced to five years at sing sing what crime did he commit to get that sentence and how did he fare once inside Funnily enough, it was actually the the robbery of the ice cream store breaking in at night. But it, what triggered it is when he when he had had when that first crime, they had put him essentially on what you know we'd call like probation. But then over the next few years, he descended into essentially being like a full on armed robber. He was arm ro- he was robbing payrolls with you know different people that he knew. He was taking all like he you know he was doing violent robberies and things. They couldn't nail him for any of these. They even tried at one point. the The safe and loft squad was following him. They went and they uh, they confronted him before a robbery. They shot and killed his partner that he was with preparing for the robbery. And essentially, when he landed before the judge, they reinstated his sentence because they said, "You've had multiple arrests prior to then. You're obviously not keeping yourself clean." So when he ended up in Sing Sing, Eddie McGrath was actually from the east side of New York, but when he ended up in Sing Sing, a lot of the Irish were on the west side of New York, especially the the criminal contingent. It was rough neighborhoods there, and he fell in with other Irish criminals in Sing Sing, and that's where he met everyone from the west side of Manhattan uh, in Sing Sing. And as I said, a very personable guy, a very likable guy, and uh, looks like he had no trouble integrating himself with his new uh, friends from the Irish west side of New York. And, right. And, and as it is for many men in this era, incarceration is basically a crime school. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This was college for him. <laughs> and once inside, he meets Red McCrossan and John Dunn. Would you tell us about them and the significance of that meeting? Yeah. So Red McCrossin and John Dunn, um, there were reports that when they were in Sing Sing, they were kind of an inseparable group, sit together, handball together. And again, they're, those two are more in line with what we think when we hear about criminals, where John McCrossin, in and out of you know juvenile detention centers, sentenced in Elmira Reformatory, and he was a West Side criminal. And then John Dunn, same thing, John Cockeye Dunn and he became Eddie McGrath's best friend, his future brother-in-law, and he was, again, also kind of that hard luck background where uh, he and his brother Pete were numerous arrests as juveniles, and both McCrossin and um, Dunn were armed robbers, just like how Eddie McGrath had been prior to uh, landing in Sing Sing. Why was Dunn nicknamed Cockeye? Again, the eyes, I don't know. He... Uh, he he essentially had like a lazy eye on one of the eyes, so uh, they called him Cockeye Dunn. Yeah, I don't think anyone called him that to his face. Like people did, the newspapers called him that, other people called him that, but I think to everyone else to his face, he was just Johnny Dunn. But yeah, the name was the nickname was definitely there. 
So this trio, while in prison, begins talking about what they'll do once they're released. And they decide that together they will focus on controlling the North River docks in West Manhattan, uh, Greenwich Village, and Chelsea. Why this portion of the waterfront? What was their plan? Prohibition was ending, so money was drying up as far as you know the the money that people were making from beer and uh, but the the docks had always been around, and this was really the earliest forms of what we see as labor racketeering nowadays, where everything wasn't controlled or centralized, but usually the docks were one of the only few places in each neighborhood. There might be, you know, if even if you broke it down by streets along the west side, each few streets had a dock. And, you know, when ships turn up, men turn out, they get paid, they work, you don't need to be skilled. But each of these docks were kind of like its own world. So, in, the, in these neighborhoods, if a gangster controlled the docks, and gangsters had been on the waterfront for years prior to this, but what was really interesting was they, it used to just be more of a basic thing where if you were the toughest guy in the neighborhood, where did gambling occur? Where was the dice games? They were on the docks. That's where the, that's where the hard living men were. That's where, so, you know, you control the gambling game. If you wanted to steal from a dock, who gets a piece of it? The toughest guy in the neighborhood. And if you wanted to collect money from guys for the right to work, you know, you control the dock. So all along the West side, you had kind of these just tough guys controlling docks, fighting for it, small spats, but Really what kind of coincided with Eddie McGrath's plan to control a dock or a few docks on the west side was the rise of organized labor was occurring right at the same time. So you had the International Longshoremen's Association, who was the union who controlled all the dock workers. They were growing. They were organizing. They were fending off rival unions. They had lost their members out in the west coast. And they had started to kind of work with these gangsters who were on the docks to ensure that the men showed up, to ensure the men worked. They were essentially using them to enforce the rule of their union at that time. So it was really an interesting time when Eddie McGrath got released from prison. And it wasn't a new idea to control a dock, but it was, you know, something new was happening at that time. Right, yeah. So McGrath gets out in the fall of 1933 on the condition that he lives with his sister. And soon he's introduced to a number of men, including Peck Hughes, the Bell Brothers. And he begins to put his plans into motion. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of his first original gang. But it was like I was saying, there was a lot of these different waterfront figures who were all kind of vying or these guys were in control of the North, like the, the, you know, the North piers in Chelsea. And these guys were in control of the South piers in Greenwich. So it was a kind of a chaotic environment in the 1930s. And with prohibition ending, there was gangsters who had been involved in bootlegging who were looking for new revenue streams. And so it wasn't, you know, Eddie McGrath wasn't just a forward thinker as far as trying to take over the waterfront. A lot of other people had the same idea as him, which, of course, led to a lot of problems during those early years. Can you tell us a, a bit about the Bell Brothers? Yeah, the Bell Brothers were extremely close associates of McGrath. There was actually quite a few Bell Brothers, but the two is closest. The two who were closest to him were uh, Henry Buster Bell and his older brother, James Ding Dong Bell. 
don't know where the nicknames come from there, but they definitely <laughs> called him Buster Bell. <laughs> they definitely called him uh, Ding Dong Bell. But um, both of them were, again, you know, they were West Siders who had been involved kind of on the waterfront for years. Ding Dong Bell had been involved in local serious organized crime. He had been shot before. And there was all just these kind of dangerous characters who were all grouping together at this time to try to create something. So, you know, you had alliances being made with different people from different neighborhoods. And that's, that's kind of where the Bell Brothers come into. We will be back in just a moment. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or call she, the police. Or call the police like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So there are two factions in this section of the waterfront, the Butler Gang and the Yanowski Gang, right? Yeah, and the the Butler Gang is kind of where Eddie McGrath fell into at first. Joe Butler was, you know, the unofficial leader of the gang, but he was well known on the West Side for years. His family was known because his father was a former alderman in in on the West Side, and his father had been involved in the International Longshoremen's Association during the very or- early days of organizing. So he was a little bit more connected than the rest of the gang. His brother, his brother William, had been a gangster for years. He died in a car accident, which kind of left Joe Butler in charge of the gang. But Joe Butler is where kind of Eddie McGrath fell under. He was good friends with this gangster named Charlie Yanowski, um at the time, too. They were all kind of working together at one point and, you know, working towards one means, which was having one large gang control the West Side. But uh, Charlie Yanowski was originally from New Jersey, so wasn't considered one of the West Siders. 
incredibly ambitious himself. And, you know, as this gang grew and as this gang was successfully expanding and taking over Pierce, it of course led to conflict within the gang. Everyone was just trying to take a bigger piece of the pie. So this is an era in New York City when the mafia, of course, is on the rise with names like Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Albert Anastasia, and, and others. How did these smaller-time gangsters navigate these murky waters? What Was McGrath and his group left alone, or was there some spillover? What were the power dynamics at play? Some spillover, for sure. It was one of those where the West Side was so insular and... There wasn't as much Italian immigration on the west side of New York and in Greenwich, Chelsea, Hell's Kitchen and things. So they kind of left each other alone in the sense that no one could infiltrate a west side neighborhood. You know, they, you know, no one was going to bet with an Italian bookie on in, in an Irish west side neighborhood. No one was going to take over the rackets in those neighborhoods. It was really their the the Italians, they were in Harlem and other neighborhoods. The Jewish gangsters were on the Lower East Side. So everyone had their own kind of areas. But Eddie McGrath was a forward thinker in the sense that even from his early days when he was working as a gangster during Prohibition, he was friends with the Italians. He, he met with them. He worked with them. He was always very accommodating of the Italians. There was definitely an Italian population in Greenwich Village. He got along with them. They serviced their people in Greenwich Village. He serviced the Irish people in Greenwich Village. So, I mean, there was definitely kind of a mutual respect there for sure. Right. So McGrath, Dunn, and McCrossin, they're working hard to make their criminal dreams a reality. But McCrossin, at a certain point, begins to splinter from the Butler gang and even starts chumming around with, with enemies like the Yanowskis. That's right. And then at that point, the jealousy, as I said, they're all trying to take a bigger piece of the pie. So, you know, they find out that they're not sharing proceeds of things. They, you know, they worry about it. And according to all the police reports, all the theories was Eddie McGrath and John Dunn were seen with McCrossin out that night. Uh, the next thing they find the next morning is McCrossin at the wheel of his car, music blaring at full blast, and he's got a bullet in his head. You know, so the, they said, John Dunn and Eddie McGrath killed John McCrossin, who was their partner at one time, which just shows you how Eddie McGrath at this point had really progressed into full-blown gangster. Right. So this war on the waterfront between the Butler and the Yanowski gang, it's known as the West Side Wars. And there's a lot of blood being spilled. Yeah, a complete free-for-all like war. There's shootings just you know even if you look at it it's in a short span of almost a year there's just constant shootings murders the two gangs that or the gang that used to be one is now two and they're both getting smaller with the amount of people that are either ending up dead or in jail because of like the 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 central war on the west side that's going on for these peers who's winning though Who, who comes out ahead in the end, it's definitely the the Butler gang in the sense that uh, it ends, though, like, uh, you know, with Joe Butler dead himself, but his gang definitely successfully killed more people. And then just the the police involvement and where the arrests were, they took a lot of the other gangsters off the street, too. So there was a big bust where they arrested, they called them the Arsenal gang in the paper, but essentially it was 
uh, I forget how many, five or six of the Yunowski gang members were found with essentially an arsenal of machine guns, handguns, fake license plates for their cars, dynamite, you name it. And the same thing, the McGrath gang, they traveled to New Jersey to try to wipe out the Yunowski gang where they were hiding because the Yunowski gang was essentially, after they started really losing this war they they were in hiding they were committing bank robberies just to stay on their feet and then some of the mcgrath gang was arrested in new jersey in a big bust where they found them sleeping in bed all armed to the teeth but mcgrath and dunn were lucky in the sense that they were both on probation at the time they were arrested for the john mccrossan murder never convicted for it but they had violated essentially their probation and they were in jail for for one year but during that year is when a lot of this stuff was going on by the time they were released back on the streets yanowski's in jail they sent him to alcatraz and joe butler he's dead by 1937 i think so they're really they were out of harm's way by being in prison during that time and when they returned the former Butler gang was the victorious gang. The Yunaski gang had been either murdered or sent to prison. And from there, McGrath and Dunn just stepped right into a leadership role. And that's where you get that uh, McGrath and John Dunn gang. Right. Yeah. Once they got out of prison, there's a, a, a leadership vacuum. So to once again establish themselves, they start by getting union jobs. They become loaders, uh, at least on paper, but they don't do much loading <laughs> themselves, <laughs> do they? No, no. And that's loading was one of the original kind of rackets on the waterfront. It, it seems almost crazy to think of it in nowadays, uh, but what essentially it was, was the longshoremen would take the goods off a ship, but they wouldn't load the trucks. So they would take the goods off and then they would leave them. And the truck loaders were essentially like the, the generally the, they were Teamsters truckers or private business truckers. They were responsible for loading their own truck. But what would happen is the gangsters would essentially hire a group of neighborhood men who they called loaders. And what they would do is provide this middleman service where the longshoremen take the goods off the ship and the loaders would load the truck and then they would charge these businesses once the gangsters started organizing it and you know they had at this point they were in control of multiple peers it, it was a lot of money that they were turning in from it they weren't doing that loading themselves they were paying other men just a low rate what would we would call minimum wage nowadays to load these trucks and they were charging exorbitant rates to the trucking companies who had no choice but to use them um and the union was okay with it because it strengthened their numbers. And essentially at this point too, the unions were in bed with the gangsters. They, they found that by having a gangster on each pier, it ensured that all the men stayed in line. No one questioned the union. No one voted out the current union reps. No one voted out the current business agents. So, you know, there'd always been kind of this relationship with gangsters on the waterfront. But at this point, Joe Ryan was the president of the Longshoremen's Union at the time. Really charismatic figure, loud. He was barroom politics. He came up when they were smashing heads on the waterfront to organize the unions and things. So he really took it to the next step in the sense that he put the gangsters on the payroll. He didn't care that these men had served sentences in Sing Sing. He actually hired a number of them and eddie mcgrath was hired as an organizer for the longshoremen's association the job that eddie mcgrath 
allegedly did was just to ensure enough men turned up at the piers each day. There was more men than there were jobs. So, I mean, I don't think he was doing a hard job. He was essentially on the payroll of the Longshoremen's Association to provide him with some legitimacy and just let him get hooks further into the waterfront. Yeah. This is the middle of the Depression, so no no shortage of, of able-bodied men willing to work. Yeah, definitely. The, it was, you know, most of them weren't getting consistent work on the waterfront. There was definitely more men willing to work than there were jobs. Right. So who was Maddie Kane, and what was the beef he had with Dunn and McGrath? Maddie Kane was in interesting figure he was a very close friend of joe butler and maddie kane was in the same gang as um dunn and mcgrath uh he was in prison kind of at the end of the the west side war when he was released from prison there was there was a large robbery too called the ruble robbery which is totally separate but involved a lot of these west side characters People say Charles Yanowski was involved in it, but essentially it was it was the largest cash robbery in history. Someone they robbed an armored truck. Some of the Yanowski gang were members of that gang and had robbed it. So everyone, you know, within that Butler Yanowski gang kind of knew the details. When Maddie Kane was in prison, there was a number of arrests associated with it, and investigations were turning up new things. And Dunn and McGrath got worried that. Maddie Kane was talking to the police and they were very worried about it because they had committed murders with Maddie Kane during the the West Side War. At one point, the three of them were thought to have been the individuals who broke into the house of a Yunowski gang lieutenant, crept up to his bedroom while he was sleeping beside his wife and shot him dead in bed next to his wife. So, I mean, they did some very bad things together and they were worried he was talking to authorities because Maddie Kane also was suddenly getting released on parole much earlier than they expected him to, as he had been arrested during the West Side War. Given his 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 long record and things, that he should have probably been in prison a little bit longer. So they essentially made plans to kill him. This was the one I talked about earlier, where unfortunately Squint Sheridan they they knew where Maddie Kane was staying and things, and unfortunately Squint Sheridan shot a perfectly honest individual no connection to any of the gangs his name was john o'hara i believe he was a young kid who squint sheridan thought was maddie kane and there was some similarity they did look alike they both lived in the same building um but yeah he he killed the wrong individual there right so mcgrath and dunn worried that kane will squeal decide to reach out to charlie yanowski and make this sinister deal <laughs> yeah. together the man that they were trying to kill only two years before and this is where mcgrath he's, he's known as a diplomat he he unites he brings people together they reach out they say well, he's got a lot of dirt on you charlie and uh, maddie kane's back in prison at this point and charlie yanowski arranges him to be stabbed to death in prison so uh, after all of that bloodshed and after all of that killing they kind of realign themselves. Uh, so whenever Yanowski's out of prison, then maybe he has a place on the waterfront again. Yeah. So Yanowski is told that if he wants to muscle his way onto the New Jersey waterfront, the Dunn-McGrath mob won't interfere. And Yanowski's banished, basically, to New Jersey. And there's not to be any overlap, no conflict. That's the idea. 
Yep. No, that's definitely, he was from New Jersey originally too, um, like Jersey city area. So they, they essentially say, you know, have at it. They, they didn't have any interest in New Jersey. They were solely based on the West side and Yanowski made it clear that he was coming back to the waterfront. So it was kind of this, uh, uneasy truce where they can say, you know, you stay over there, we'll stay over here and bygones will be bygones for now. Right. So McGrath then finds himself at odds with another former Butler gang member, Leo Toki. And this feud culminates in Toki's death, right? Yeah, and this was kind of in these post-war year, uh, post-West Side War years. You know, th- there was almost like this kind of cleanup after where everything had settled, uh, McGrath and Dunn were in control, but there was still a lot of unrest where... You know, he was he was a member of the Butler gang, Leo Toki, and he was a friend of McGrath's for a long time. And this is where, again, McGrath was smart. Leo Toki was involved with the Italian mob in a lot of things. And he was Murder Inc., which was like a organization that Albert Anastasia ran, which was essentially a hitman for hire group out in Brooklyn. He was friends with some of the gangsters who were a part of that group. The DA was investigating them. They were indicting them. Most of them would end up in the electric chair. But at the time, Leo Toki was seen as a witness. And, you know, the Italian mob was looking to clean up at that point anything that could blow back on them. Where Leo Toki through McGrath knew a lot of these individuals. McGrath had sent him down to Florida to lay low and stay low. And Toki, he, he wasn't that person. He was... He, he was a partier. He was in Florida and essentially just causing lots of trouble. He was he was dating other people's wives. He was doing kind of a great Gatsby down there. And word was getting back to McGrath. And uh, McGrath and Buster Bell traveled down to Florida, picked up Toki. They were supposed to be driving. The police theory is that they pulled over on the side of the road to use the bathroom and then they shot Toki in the head and then dumped his body um, just on the coast of Florida there. But this was a kind of shows just how McGrath, yes, he's loyal to his friends, but if they mess with his business, he will take these steps. And he also did it as a favor to the Italian mob because, you know, they were the ones who were worried about what could come out if Toki got arrested, would he cooperate, would, you know, these type of things. So he cleaned up his own mess internally. How do police connect McGrath to the Toki murder? Yeah, this was a closer. He was actually indicted for this murder. He uh, it went on for quite some time and essentially he it was discharged, but they had him and Henry Buster Bell signing in at the hotel. They had them picking up Toki's car if I from a diner, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, they had them picked out from photographs. So they knew that the two were in Florida. They knew that the two had picked up Toki. There was kind of a, a trail of circumstantial evidence that showed that these two were here. These two were the last men seen with him before he was dead. But beyond that, there, were, there was nothing else to kind of tie him to the crime. So McGrath, while in Florida in January of 1943, he meets a Chicago woman named Estelle Carey, who had gone there to try and clear a sinus infection. Her nickname was the Queen of the Dice Girls, and she was described as a beautiful, well-dressed woman with a great personality, and she had ties to the Chicago mob. Yeah, she was uh, really a, a quintessential kind of gangster's mall. She was 
uh, a pretty girl hung around the gangs hung around the gangsters McGrath was in Florida at the time as he was on trial for murder after that he had met Estelle Carey through I'd assume some of his gangster friends because he didn't know her prior to then he never traveled to Chicago but essentially you know they they stayed together for a period of time in uh, Florida just after he was acquitted of the murder can you tell us about the circumstances of her untimely death the discovery of her body in her hotel room on February 2nd, 1943. Yeah, they find her, you know, this is back in Chicago, and when they find her, she's 34 at the time, but they find her body, and it's not a it's not a good scene. She'd been beaten, they think, with a, a blackjack or a kitchen rolling pin or a bottle. She'd been slashed maybe with a, a knife, and then someone had tried to set fire to her body. The police even think that she may have actually died from the fire rather than the assault itself. So a really messy scene. The apartment is trashed. And yeah, unfortunately, she's, she's murdered. Super sad. Yeah, so even though they had supposedly parted ways in Florida, McGrath was still a suspect. There was a belief by some that he might have accompanied her back to Chicago, and police questioned him. They questioned McGrath because they figured he was, you know, the the police called him a syndicate man, so he was connected to the, you know, different gangsters all around the country, and they um, felt that, you know, he could have been involved in the murder. McGrath has always denied it to friends, associates, anyone that would listen. Phone records established that he might not have even been there in, in Chicago at the time, but he was so recently involved with her that he was a prime suspect in the murder. There was also, you know, the Chicago outfit. They felt that they could have played a part as she was in a relationship with a nightclub owner um, named uh, uh, Nick Sorella, who was involved in the Chicago outfits rackets and, the Chicago outfit was apparently worried that he was talking to a grand jury at the time. So some people theorize that, you know, she was murdered to send a message to him to make sure he keeps his mouth shut. There's also been theories where they saw a man running down the stairs with a couple of fur coats, if I'm not mistaken. And the fur coats themselves were they the police identified that they were taken from the apartment. But interestingly enough, two fur coats were taken, but there was you know, thousands of dollars in jewelry, all like untouched. So uh, it was a curious case for sure. And the murder was never solved. No, no. And a lot of different theories, but um, all of them either tie back to um, she either knew too much or she was involved with people who other people were trying to silence or the, the last theory is that People knew about her connections to these big gangsters, and they figured she'd have money and jewelry, and it was a robbery gone wrong. Back after this brief break. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. 
Jesus, listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook. Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned once more. So much of what we're talking about here happens in the early 1940s. So what exactly goes on at the docks during World War II? Are these gangsters profiting from the war? Or are these peers being appropriated by the military? Yeah, it was a bit of a twofold where the peers were busy. So there was work and there was steady work um, because of the military efforts. So there was definitely money to be made. On the other hand, the military was in full control of some of the peers. So you had soldiers on the pier and things. So, you know, it was a bit of an interference with their usual activity. Some of their, some of their rackets, they're more like visible illicit rackets on piers were dried up. But the other thing it did is it rose the importance of these individuals because it was unspoken, but we know that the U.S. military, the U.S. transportation, they knew that these gangsters controlled this union. They controlled the flow of goods. And, you know, in a lot of they they decided that they would do business with these individuals to ensure that the war effort was successful. So it did elevate importance of people like, you know, Eddie McGrath and Cockeye Dunn and the union in general, that the army relied on this union to ensure that the workers were working and that the ships were being loaded and that the goods were being transported. So there was some positives and some negatives as far as the war went for the gangsters. So once the war is over, these combat tested veterans return home and many to jobs as longshoremen and they've killed men and they are hardened. They're not as easily pushed around, right, as, as they were maybe before 
the war. Yeah, for for years they had been under the thumb of the gangsters who controlled when they worked, how they worked. They were asked to give up some of their money for the right to work. You know, there was payroll padding. The gangsters, you know, you'd see their brothers sleeping on the job while you loaded, but it was an accepted reality. But you had these individuals who had been, as you said, they had killed in action. They had fought for their freedom. They they weren't as accepting to that world of being under the gangsters. And these were some capable individuals who were some, some tough, honest workers. And they, they weren't willing to, you know, after fighting in the war, after seeing the things in the war, go back to just being under the gangsters' thumbs. Right, right. So in this tense atmosphere, a veteran named Anthony Hintz is managing Pier 45 when he is approached by a Dun McGrath underling named Danny Gentile. And Gentile has a proposition for Hintz, right? Yep. He was part of kind of that first wave where, you know, he was, the, some of the peers were reopening after the war. So the gangsters who were there, like before the war, the shipping companies were hiring people and they hired people like Anthony rather than, the gangsters. So the gangsters were kind of doing their thing where they're going up and down and saying, okay, you can stay at this job. You're kicking back this much a week. You know, you're hiring this person, you're doing this. And he was one of the first to just say, no, I'm, I'm independent from you. I'm doing it myself. And even in the background of this, we had a, another union that was in Greenwich Village, local 895, where we had veterans who uh, won a, an election that had never happened in years against the paper men that the gangsters had put in charge of that local union, which was just a Greenwich Village longshoremen's union. So we were starting to see some of this pushback for the first time. And Anthony Heinz was definitely one of the kind of the first and most vocal individuals to to speak up against the gangsters. Right. So Hintz refused to back down. And these gangsters start turning the screws uh, he, he's so worried that he arranges for someone to pick him up at his apartment building in the morning and take him to work. Uh, a lot of precautions and for very good reason. Yeah, definitely. Ding Dong Bell, one of the Bell brothers, actually even shot him in the leg at one point. So he knew that the things were escalating and that he was in a lot of trouble, but he he held his ground firm. He was he doesn't have the criminal record or the big gangster lifestyle that the rest of them did. He was a real normal working guy, but he was a tough guy too. He was known as like a local neighborhood tough guy. And, you know, he drew a line in the sand with the gangsters, which was unheard of at the time. Right. So can you talk about this moment when he is ambushed in his staircase? Yeah. He was coming down one day and uh, Cockeye Dunn, um, Squint Sheridan, and uh, Danny Gentile, who actually knew Hintz and was friends with him. He was kind of there to show where he lived and things. They ambushed him in the stairwell and shot him. Um, people were kind of surprised that Cockeye Dunn and Squint Sheridan would be there doing the hit themselves. But essentially, Hintz had mocked them openly to their face to the point that Cockeye Dunn felt like he was going to do this himself, even though he was the gang leader, probably had a dozen men under him who could have done the, done the shooting. He went himself and handled it just as a show of strength again, because Hintz was really the first one speaking out. But where this went wrong is that Hintz didn't die by the time they, they assumed he was dead, but um, he was alive still. They took him to the hospital. He lingered in the hospital 
for the first time kind of in waterfront history is and it broke him in the sense that he was crying when he did it he didn't want to provide a statement but he named who shot him and he provided a deathbed statement about who his killers were yeah and it's his wife Maisie who who really steps up and convinces him to name names because he's concerned about getting called a snitch but it, but it's Maisie's actions which really lead ultimately to the executions of Cockeye Dunn and Squint Sheridan. Yep. As a result of, you know, those statements and some of the evidence against them, Danny Gentile's sentence was commuted as he he essentially started cooperating after he was convicted, just with some other different matters on the waterfront. But Squint Sheridan and John Cockeye Dunn, who at this time was Eddie McGrath's brother-in-law, he had married uh, Eddie McGrath's sister, and they, they did end up in the electric chair at Sing Sing. And Charlie Yanowski, by the way, continued to build his little empire along the New Jersey waterfront until he became a bit too big for his britches and started stepping on the toes of associates of guys like Frank Costello. Yeah, and at this point, McGrath had kind of grown in stature because of his waterfront position. So he was really close to a lot of these kind of top uh, Italians. uh, Jimmy Allo was one of his best friends who was with uh, the Genovese family. And then we had, as he said, Frank Costello. He was, Willie Moretti was kind of the big, had all the gambling area that Yanowski was pushing into. No one knows who murdered Yanowski, but essentially he was, warned uh, that you know he was getting too big for his britches he was expanding his rackets too aggressively to stay in his lane and then he was seen eating at a restaurant with an associate was confidently telling them that he was meeting with someone he trusted and then the next thing they find him is him stabbed to death in a field so again they don't know who did it but they know that it was done because he was expanding in new jersey into the Italians rackets. Some of the police theories were that it was Albert Acolytus, who was a former Yanowski gang member who would later become in McGrath's gang and take over a lot of Yanowski's rackets um, because he was so confident he was meeting with someone he trusted. But that was just one theory. But it essentially it was whoever did it, did it as a favor to the Italian mob. Oh, I, I do want to go back to the Hintz investigation for, for a moment. You were able to secure a copy of the autobiography of one of the players in that. Yeah, it was one of the uh, DAs, Keating, I think is his name, but it was, uh, it's an older one that you can still find it in some places, but it's a great read. It essentially covers the whole trial and things. And at one point, he's with a police officer, and the police officer invites him out to, you know, get dinner. And police officer takes him into a restaurant that happens to be owned by one of McGrath's lieutenants. They sit down at the table and who joins them for dinner but McGrath. McGrath didn't talk about anything with the case or with the trial, but he sat there and he made pleasantries. So, you know, it just shows you how hooked into the police force McGrath even was and the corruption that was there at that time. But this was one where even some of the cops were saying like, you know, you shouldn't be pinning this on Dunn. He's a good guy. He's, he's a friend of the police. He makes sure our families have jobs and stuff on the waterfront or a cop gets a job after they retire and things. So Keating really went over how many people were really pushing to not 
convict done and you know not proceed with the trial they a lot of people just didn't want it to get to trial so it was it's a it's a good read it's a great read actually yeah it's a really great scene in the book uh, for sure so once dunn and sheridan are dead things start becoming hot on the docks for these hoods there is increased scrutiny federal investigations yeah, there is definitely Malcolm Johnson, who would win the Pulitzer for his series of articles. The articles were titled On the Waterfront, and then you know the basis and the idea of the articles would inspire the movie On the Waterfront. But he did an expose piece, and again, he was getting a lot of pushback. He was getting calls at night and things, hang-up calls. Uh, people were telling him it wasn't a good idea. But he wrote a series of articles that highlighted and name names for the first time, which gangsters were controlling which peers. They had about three or four parts of the series was dedicated to Eddie McGrath and John Dunn. And, it, you know, it was an expose piece and it, all of New York was interested in it. And because of the interest, they formed a crime commission to investigate the conditions of the waterfront. And it was called the New York State Crime Commission. And they essentially called every who's who on the waterfront from the president of the international longshoremen association joe ryan to eddie mcgrath himself and they they brought them in front they sat them in court and you know they just hammered them with questions to expose the conditions on the waterfront and this proves to be just too much heat from mcgrath right he just leaves yeah he sees the writing on the wall in the sense that he's too much of a face now he's too well known he was scared, too, of Danny Gentile was cooperating with the Crime Commission and things, and that's how he got his sentence, uh, his death sentence commuted and things. So McGrath was worried what would come of that, and he he takes off to Florida. He leaves all of his rackets in the hands of other individuals within his gang, so it's not like he just walks away and isn't involved anymore, but he decides to kind of operate his gang by proxy from from sunny Florida. And he's similar to some of these other mob guys from this era, like Meyer Lansky, who ends up living a relatively long and comfortable life, right? Yeah, and he, he does for years. Like he, he stays in Florida and they investigate him, but you know, he still had his hands in the Longshoremen's Association for even these FBI reports up until like we're the eighties and nineties, because for years he knew all of these officials in the Longshoremen's Association that were coming up, and he was also friends with the Italian mob. So as the Italian mob grew in power and the Irish mob really declined, like by the seventies, you know, they weren't they weren't a significant power anymore. Eddie McGrath was really the conduit between the Italian mob who had an interest in the International Longshoremen's Association and the union officials who were predominantly Irish. He had known these guys, he had known their fathers, and he he's, he's friends, as he said, Meyer Lansky, Jimmy Allo. He was living that life in Florida. He had a condo, golfed every day. He, he met with the mobsters. He wined and dined. He would travel back to New York discreetly to solve problems. They still knew, even well into the 60s, he was controlling very specific unions. He was had the final say on matters on the West Side waterfront. And it wasn't really until the West Side docks declined and the waterfront fully moved to New Jersey that you kind of saw his power begin to, to wane a little bit. Right, right. When does he die? 
I, could, I think he goes right into the nineties if I'm not mistaken. But by that point, he's kind of, he is out of it a, like a bit, you know, he's not totally involved, but as far back as John Bowers was the ILA president in the nineties and the, the up into the two thousands. And, you know, I've had FBI reports where the president of the ILA in the 1980s was still traveling down to Florida to meet with Eddie, you know, as far as like he had his hands in there. And as I think his big role was he was the peacekeeper between the union and the Italian mob. Cause the union was still Irish controlled, especially in the seventies, right into the eighties and things. And Eddie McGrath just, he had his hand still in it. And I'm sure it wasn't involved to the extent of, you know, when he was controlling gambling and loading and all those things, but he was, he's still involved in labor racketeering for sure, which was what the FBI continued to investigate him for. Oh, so interesting. So you have a website with more information about you and your book. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can find me at uh, neilgclark.com. And yeah, if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out. That was the one perk of writing the book. I wish I had met them all before, but after the book came out, so many people, family members of people in the book, you know, reached out with all their stories and things. So it's always fun when that happens. Oh yeah. This book is nonstop action. (laughs) Fight after fight, hit after hit. It was Uh, a rough world. That's for sure. A lot of retribution. And the majority of these guys you write about end up paying the price for their villainous actions. Yeah. And that's what made Eddie McGrath again, different in the sense that, you know, he died in his own bed. He never went back to prison and things after that, that sentence he served other than I think he did 30 days at one point, but you know, he, he did, he died in sunny Florida in his condo rather than most of his other friends. Well, thank you again so much for your time. No worries. Thank you for having me. It was great. Again, I have been speaking to Neil G. Clark. He is the author of Doc Boss, Eddie McGrath, and the West Side Waterfront. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.